throughout almost every single one of your interviews was people are holding on to a branch on a burning tree and being like, well, how will we guarantee safety if we let go of this? <laughs> you know, and it's like, there's no guarantee in any direction. That's not what we're guaranteed safety. What we are guaranteed is that we can be together in this and that we can figure out a way to do this in deeper alignment with our values. I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in Minneapolis, the center of the uprising. I'm Adrian Marie Brown, a writer based in Detroit who is returning from a six-month sabbatical and really excited to be back. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast on surviving and facing apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And you're back! <laughs> Hi, sister! Hi, sister. Welcome back. Thank you. I am really gr- grateful to be back and grateful for the world that I am returning to. Um, and wow, so much happened while I was away. Yeah, we, <laughs> we don't did some things while you were gone. Y'all, y'all been up to some things. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's incredible to return. Today, we're going to do a deep dive on what we've learned from our survival series. And that conversation will flow right into what we've been thinking about in the last week, as conversations about reimagining public safety have taken their rightful place on the national stage. But first, we wanted to stop and create an altar for all the lives we have lost to the COVID-19 pandemic. At the time of this recording, 411,629 people have been known to have lost their lives to COVID-19 globally. What we are about to share is the names of those who our community lifted up to us, your family, your loved ones. We ask you wherever and whenever you are listening to us, if you can pause, light a candle if you're able, close your eyes and hold that each name we read was someone's child, was a dream, a dreamer, a beloved, and is now a grieved member of our extended community. We want to thank all of the listeners who took time to send us the names of your loved ones, and we'll leave a moment at the end for you to say any names that didn't get added or sent to us yourselves. John Christ Tula Pulos Marlo Studemeyer May Bunny Reynolds Hunter Lloyd Porter Lori Baker Aquata Fran Mateo Bearbel David Colbert Janet Cheryl Lovett Howard Francisco Antonio Crescioni the Fourth Clarence Smoke Sutton Tio Luis Angel Karen Vickers Freddie Brown Jr. Freddie Brown the Third Oli May Allen Nona Farior Stephen Michael Robles Nathan Allman Shirley Nana Chosel Marisa Santos Benjamin J. Franco B. Freud Mafuz Solomon Patricia Shears Dr. George Grant Fred Jones Bernice Armistead Mama Fonville 
Candelario Suarez. Tia Martha. Anna Ortiz. Mr. Lee A. Jim Brown. Marnie Zhang. Squish. Roosevelt Maryland Jr. Cheryl Morrison. Anthony Crum. Will Johnson. Mohammed Yusri Harhor. Christopher Davis. During this time, we also lost Richard Hake and our friend Stacy Milburn. And among the countless souls lost every year to state sponsored violence, we add George Floyd. Brianna Taylor, Ahmad Arbery, Tony McDade. We honor your lives. Ashe. Ashe. So I made a list of questions, which is one of the first tasks that I have done as a returning human. Hey, I love lists. <laughs> I know. I was like, I made a list of questions. Okay. So the first question was, did you miss me? Oh, sister. <laughs> I did. I did miss you. It was interesting to like go through the process of, of figuring out what the show was going to look like without you there. Um, uh-huh. and like, particularly like, how were we going to introduce each episode and how to preserve some, some of the, like, um, like the playful and familial energy that we have when we're yeah. doing yeah. recordings. And I think because of like what I think I'd be curious to know what other folks noticed, but I, what I noticed, um, about like you missing from the miniseries was that every interview felt a lot more serious. <laughs> like uh-huh. there, there, uh-huh. there, like I feel like you bring a playfulness to um, to the to the conversations and to the interviews that like to it's me true. felt like it was like like it was and it wasn't like it was missing in like a a bad way. Like I think it was actually probably given the conditions that we were operating under while recording this miniseries and given what's been happening in the <laughs> world, like I feel like it was yeah. actually totally fine for each of the episodes to just have more of a serious energy. Um, but I, yeah. I definitely noticed the like, Oh, like I'm used to laughing a lot more as a part of doing this project. And I missed laughing with you, you know, like, um yeah it was as I was listening uh to you in some of the conversations I would hear you throw out something that would have been a joke um if I had been there <laughs> and I'll be like <laughs> yeah girl bloop and then just be like oh they didn't okay that's that's a different direction um <laughs> but it was great it was great because I was just like oh actually all of these conversations are really served by how seriously they're being taken. Yeah. So definitely. I'm glad. And I missed you too. Um, I would love to ask just what your life has been like over the past few months um, as you've been doing this series. Cause it's not like, I imagine it has not been the ideal conditions for trying to pull off a massive <laughs> pros- pod- podcast process that involved lots of interviews and scheduling and all these things. Yeah, it was. Well, yeah, what's it been like? It, it, I have to say it was really interesting, like the, so as, you know, as all of our listeners who've listened to the miniseries know, we had been planning the miniseries for months, right? I mean, like the inception of this miniseries came several years ago when we started the show, like right. we knew we wanted to do it. And then we decided to do it during this time that you were going to be on sabbatical. We started planning out the series, you know, 
like actively planning it about like five or six months before we launched it. Um, just in terms yeah. of sketching out what the topics were going to be and all the things. And, and then, you know, I remember in January, February, I'm like starting to schedule all the interviews or at least the first set of interviews while I'm figuring out who the rest of the guests are going to be and what the episode structure is going to look like and all the things. Um, and, you know, and already at that point, I knew that I was going to be including Finn's voice in the show because Finn had repeatedly expressed interest in like having conversations that were recorded about apocalypse. And so we were moving forward with that. And then the pandemic hits and multiple things are happening for me at that moment. Like one is I have one of my children is like suffering from a mystery illness, And I'm taking this child to all these different doctor appointments. I'm already like, you know, at the point that the school closures happened in the middle of March, I had already been on leave from work for two weeks because I was home with my child who was sick, trying to go through all of these different appointments, trying to figure out what was going on. And, and so then the school closures happened, which are really relieving for me because I'm in the situation where I'm like, I don't know yet what's going on with my kid. I'm not sure if they fall into the category of being immunocompromised or not, but I definitely don't want them to be in school right now. But then, but then I'm suddenly having to navigate, like now I have to take like emergency leave from work because I have to be home with my children through the most likely at that point, you know, because at first it's like closing for two weeks, then three weeks then a month. And then finally, I mean, but as soon as they close the schools, like most of us knew, like kids are not going back to school at the end of the school year. Right. right? Like, or not before the end of the school year. So, um, so I'm navigating having, you know, the first five weeks after the schools closed, I had my kids for like, the, almost that entire time straight with the exception of like a couple wow. of nights where I didn't have them for a lot of reasons. And so, so I'm, that sounds really wild. It was wild. So I'm in <laughs> like, the midst of this situation where I'm like full time solo parenting my children. Lots of folks in wow. my life are like in different kinds of crisis. The pandemic is unfolding and we're all in the process. <laughs> like right now I'm having this moment where I'm like, remember the pandemic? But at that point, you know, it's like the th- only thing that's happening. And we're all in the process of figuring out what does it look like to be safe and secure? What does it look like to have pods? What are the practices that we're all using? How are we all supporting each other? What does mutual aid look like? Like we're all figuring this out. And in the midst of that, I'm sitting here like, we have to do this miniseries. Like, this is the time. This is, like, the time that we need this content. Like, it didn't feel like an option for me to delay it or cancel it in the same way that other things felt like it was an option to delay and cancel. Um, Like, for, like, a lot of my other professional work, I knew that, like, this project can be pushed off to July. This project can be pushed off to August. But with the miniseries, I just felt like a strong personal sense of responsibility for going ahead and getting it out into the world and yeah. and and also kind of rethinking some of the subjects in relationship to what was actually unfolding because it was like you know we're thinking and often talking about apocalypse as something that's going to happen not something that is already that we're already living inside of and yeah and this that we're in it and of course in in our show where we we orient differently to that you know we orient to the fact that so many of our communities have already either been through apocalypse or are currently surviving apocalypse but this was an experience where it's like we are all in this sea of change right now everyone is having a shared experience that the way our world is structured is fundamentally shifting underneath our feet and right this is the moment where we need to be having conversations about like the skills that we actually have to be building in order to move through this together in a holistic way that's oriented towards healing and justice. And so that meant that that I was having to figure out, like, how am I, 
<laughs> how am I recording interviews? Because I'm with my children continuously. In a house full of very, very, very vigorous, vigorous very loud. Yes. And I live in an apartment in South Minneapolis. And so what it looked like was I was <laughs> for the for the first few weeks, um, for the first like probably month and a half, I was primarily recording at night after my kids went to bed. Um and then okay. any like uh, reviewing pr- or production work or any work uh, writing, whether it was developing the questions for the interviews or whether it was, um, you know, writing the content for the intros um, to each episode, which I always recorded separately. Yeah. Um, all of that was happening late at night in my closet after the kids went to bed. This series involved a lot more prep work with guests and a lot more editorial than I think we've done in the past because we wanted to be really, really careful with the the content uh that we were putting out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's some of the strongest work that the podcast has done. It made me realize how often I'm listening to interviews or reading stuff from people who are speaking about stuff without necessarily having lived experience in it. Like it's very theoretical and Mm -hmm. it's like, theoretically we need to do this. Yeah, we should, you know? And I just felt like multiple times during the, this interview series, it was so great to hear these people like, yeah. And then 10 years ago when I did this and then five years ago I did this and it was just like, Oh, this is like your passion. Like your whole life in, in a lot of ways is being shaped by, answering this question. And it just was, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it just felt thrilling to me in the way that I've often felt thrilled, like at the Allied Media Conference or something where I'm like, oh, people are just like doing this every day. Like this is not a trend. It's not a new thing. It's, it's an ongoing, long weaving community. Um, And I just, yeah, I thought that showed out really well. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm going to ask a few questions just to sort of pull out like what you feel like you learned um what were you what do you feel like you were the most surprised to learn like over the course of all the interviews what felt like the biggest like what (laughs) like I needed that Mm. well there is a specific tidbit that came out of um the first interview I did with Queer Nature that was the most surprising piece of information that I learned over the course of the interviews. And that was the, like, it was kind of an aside that they shared about how well children do in survival situations. Mm. Um, And I remember, I don't remember which, I don't remember who said it. It was either So or Pinar, but one of them pointed out that children up to the age of eight have like the best chances of surviving being lost alone in the woods because of the fact that they can imagine their conditions differently and oh, like they wow. can look at they can look at a bush and see it as shelter and turn oh, it into shelter. Wow. They're really good at building fortresses. They're really good at creating shelter for themselves. I remember the forest. And then in the yes. next, <laughs> yeah. And then in the next interview, one of them talked about the fact that that's also why children are really hard to find when they're lost because they're so good at evading mm-hmm. <laughs> and sheltering mm-hmm. in place. And there was something for me that felt like, uh, I just remember it landed in my heart in a really special way to know to have it feel affirmed through data about children, the yes. role that yeah. imagination plays in our survival, that our ability to to look at our conditions and see the opportunity there inside of whatever fearful, terrorizing, or just destitute situation we're in Mm. that that the capacity to imagine the literal conditions differently not just imagine future conditions but also looking around at our actual conditions and being like how how could I see what's happening through a different lens that Mm. that is the key to my survival that was the most I think surprising thing that I learned because I feel like in our in our movements there's a lot of conversation right now about imagination and a lot of conversation about how to um, how we have to unleash our imaginations and imagine a better future 
And I think for me, the idea that, no, we have to imagine a different now and imagine our di- our current conditions differently, that was awesome. I love that. <laughs> that was really, really awesome. Yeah. I love that. And that, yeah, that really resonated with me too. As I was like, oh, right. We have to be able to think like children, imagine like children. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then what were you the most surprised to l- realize that you already knew? Mm, gosh, I'm trying to think of like whether I felt like I already knew things during the <laughs> miniseries. Because honestly, I really I felt very sponge like throughout yeah. the process. I yeah. I felt um, especially hearing uh, people's personal stories, which some of which showed up in the interviews that were actually released as episodes, some of which didn't. You know, there was some stuff that like. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff that I heard that didn't, you know, make it all the way into the episode. And, um, and some of that was just really raw and, and beautiful and felt like I felt deeply honored to be receiving those stories. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think like, so I, I don't remember having a clear sense that I was like, oh yeah, like, oh wow, I already knew that. Um, but I think that there were some things that perhaps I became more sure of. Uh-huh. Um, over the course of the series, you know, like, um, like with the, the episode that we just released about the right to defend ourselves. I think that like having that conversation with Rashid made me feel more sure, more certain that I do have the right to defend myself. Yes. However, I decide to do that. Um, but that, and that the it, I felt more, you know, as I was as I was setting up that episode, I knew that I wanted to like have it absent this binary around, you know, violence versus nonviolence inside the question of mm-hmm. of community self defense and individual mm-hmm. self defense, mm-hmm. and then having the conversation with him made me feel even more certain that that was the right move. That it's like that we can't keep having the conversation about defending ourselves inside of a binary as though like defending ourselves is violence and we have only two options to choose from. Right. And so that, that was really that, that it, it felt like affirming to, mm-hmm. to have a conversation with someone that made me feel more certain that, that I do have rights, whether or not I act on them. I do have, I do have not just the right to defend myself, but also the right to survive. That was one of the yes. messages that I really took away from. Yeah, that I really took away from my conversation with Rashid and my conversations with Vicky and with So and Panar. Like one of the through lines of all of those conversations was, we 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 act on these, we we engage in these activities, and we act on these. Um, skills because we have the right to live because we have the right to advocate for our own survival that is why we take over buildings that is why we learn how to survive in extreme situations or we learn to be able to be stealthy and evade that is why we learn the skill of defending ourselves because we 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 know that deeply our life is more valuable than any ideology and to me that was that was so um, so aligned with everything that this show is really about ultimately. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. It's like recognizing exactly. that our, all, all of our communities and all of our individual lives have inherent worth, inherent value, and we all have the right to do what is necessary to survive. I love that. I love that. And I feel like, it, yeah, it did strike to the core. <laughs> you know, as I'm just like, yes, I have the right to exist. And I have the right to protect myself and my mm-hmm. loved ones. And yeah, that it just felt like opening up more possibilities for the conversation. Because that's uh, so many of these episodes, I was like, these are conversations that people should be having with their communities. Like, listen to this and mm-hmm. then have this conversation with the people that you're, you know, quarantined with. <laughs> it's like, what will we do? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's like, I mean, and there's no time like the present, right? Exactly. Because because now one of the things that was really interesting about releasing these episodes in the context of a pandemic where people are sheltered in place and quarantining is that it, it does give 
folks an opportunity to build a different kind of relationship right where they are. Exactly. A relationship that's grounded in shared agreements. Exactly. And yeah. and I think that, you know, across the board, one of the things that I was witnessing across like a lot of my personal relationships as we've all been navigating the pandemic is this uh, is consent an agreement? Mm-hmm. And do we, <laughs> do we as Americans or, you know, non-Americans living in a U.S. context, do we know how to um, have consent, how to gain consent, how to identify when we've actually reached agreement with others? Mm-hmm. And, so, and I feel like I noticed uh, particularly with, with the court, with quarantine and sheltering, um, that our ability to assess whether we've actually reached agreement is that's how we know whether we're in a pod, right? That's how we know whether yes. we are, whether we are safely in relationship with others. And then, and, and to me, it feels like one of the baseline skills that, also came up over and over again in the interviews was communication and being able to make decisions together, reach agreement and gain consent and know that the consent is real. Yeah. And realize like where there's places where you're like, if we don't agree, what happens next? You know, like I think that that it's been such an interesting, interesting conversation to move from, you know, for me to move from being in a really, really isolated quarantine scenario to one in which I'm like, now navigating the quarantine boundaries with a bunch of other people who have a bunch of other thoughts mm-hmm. and beliefs around all of it and yeah. navigating, right? And just being like, oh, yeah, like even though at all times, always, our lives are on the line based on the decisions that people are making around us and the decisions we make, the pandemic heightened it all, right? That it was like, no, seriously, <laughs> like the choices you make will impact my capacity to survive and vice versa. And Mm -hmm. how do we want to do this? Yeah. Yeah. So I was really grateful for each of the episodes felt like it laid in so well with both the pandemic and then with these uprisings. Um, And I think you just kind of did, I wanted to go through and just be like key takeaway from each episode for you. Yeah. So I feel like you Mm -hmm. just offered that for the defending ourselves one, (laughs) right? Which is just like, Mm -hmm. I have the right to defend myself. Um, Right. And it's not a question. It's not a question. It's not a question. And it's not a weakness. You know, like I think for such a long time as someone who was politicized onto a nonviolence path, that there was a, a while where I felt like, oh, it would be a weakness for me if I was to ever arm myself, ever defend myself. And it just felt like such a, a opening up of the possibility of like, it's not a weakness. Um, it's a skill set we want to have in our community. And all of it, I kept thinking about it in, in relationship to community, right? That I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. someone's got to have it. And actually, I'll just say this brief aside too. One of the things I binged <laughs> while I was on sabbatical was the 100. And- ah! I love it. You you love it, and you have loved it for a long time. And so I just took all six <laughs> seasons straight to the head. And um, one of the things I love about it, though, is that question comes up over and over again, right? Is that moral conundrum of like, what kind of people are we? Are we the kind of people mm. who defend ourselves at any cost? Or are we the kind of people who defend the weakest? Are we the kind of people who defend the most different? Are we the kind of people who see ourselves as all the most, you know, like just what kind of people are we? And then inside of that, like there's the people who are jump to the guns and jump to arming themselves. And then there's those who are like, no, we don't want to do that and all of it. And it just felt like really good watching (laughs) to go alongside Mm. of all the conversations. And everyone's wearing like like, amazing outfits the entire time. Very amazing outfits. By the end, Abby's like black leather. I was like, I don't know where you got that in the Apocalypse Fashion Store, but I'm going to need that one. I mean, yeah, it's like the number of people who have like lace-up bodices that are black leather. It's like, where is everyone getting their black leather? I have not seen that. (laughs) I didn't see the where they were making it. But I did feel that constant (laughs) question of like, oh... Similar to, you know, what I think movement has learned over and over again is that nonviolence generally succeeds because there are people who are willing to arm themselves and stand next to them <laughs> and protect them right. and bodyguards and like all the other things. And it just feels like a um, 
the more nuanced understanding we have of that, the better we can actually turn and face what the moment requires. So thank you Mm -hmm. for that one. Mm -hmm. So let's just rapidly go down. What would you feel like is the primary takeaway from the justice-based healthcare conversation you had with Anjali? So I would say I would say the key takeaway from my conversation with Anjali about Casa de Salud, um, which maybe won't be a surprise to anyone, is the solutions are already here. We already have a model, multiple models, actually, but Casa de Salud, I think, is, is one of the clearest. But we already have a model for how we transition away from the healthcare system that we have to a healthcare system that is more holistic, more sustainable, mm. affordable, you know, and, and answers on answers, not every solution, but most. Right. So I think that, you know, I think it's it's I I feel like um, to me, that episode was um, just one of the clearest answers on like the question of what do we do? It's like yes. we don't actually have to look too far. It's not you know, it is a, it is a process. It's incremental. It requires yeah you know, a high level of willingness to engage in like policy work, legislative work, but also, you know, they're just, they, they just innovated and created a whole different model of how people access care. And they did yeah. that inside of the system as it exists. And so I think yes. that like, That's great. I, yeah, for me, that was, that was the key is just like, yep. Like we always say, someone's already got the solution and here they are. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. What about for a digital security? Digital security, one of my key takeaways from that conversation was um, the fact that we, um, like most people who are engaging with the internet, do not understand what it means <laughs> yes. to be on the internet and, to in, and don't understand um, how their personal information is being used and why. Um, Bex made this really excellent point about like, you know, thinking thinking of um, of signing on to Facebook or Instagram or these other platforms as like a contract that you're entering into with someone who has really different goals than you. Um, and I think that that was like one of the key learnings for me that we – we're by and large, a lot of us are just going about utilizing these technologies without um, without understanding what they actually are and what their yeah. purpose is, mm-hmm. which is different from our purpose for using them. And yeah. I think that we'll the clearer make use we of can, our purpose. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. And we'll make use of our purpose and let us think that, you know, we are having agency, which we don't. And so I think that the clearer we can get about that, the more quickly we will be able to develop other solutions. You know, I I really like that as the key takeaway because it does feel like this aha. You know, for me, it lined up with when I took my social media break. Um, this is one of the episodes mm. that I listened to during that social media break. And I had really started to feel like, oh, I'm I'm really in an addiction cycle with this. And my friend Janine is like, yeah, everyone is. That that's how it's just like she's always reminds me like it's not it's not like not just you bitch. having it's actually like how it's designed. <laughs> it's designed to be used in an addictive way and, and all this. Mm-hmm. And um, but it was so helpful to be like, oh right, like and I don't have to use it. And there's a lot of life outside of it. And so if I am going to be here, what is the most mindful way to choose to be here? Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, the other show I've been watching is Billions. And it's about, (laughs) you know, sort of brilliant billionaire people, right? Where I'm like, oh, yeah, like that's what we're dealing with is folks who are so far removed from, you know, kind of what I would think of as like humane impulses for Mm -hmm. why they do things, right? Like everything right. is at such a massive scale. And so I think that, you know, you know, in the movie When Harry Met Sally, where there's that woman who's always like, he's never going to leave her. Right. I feel like that whenever people are like on Facebook or whatever, like, oh, my God, are they stealing my data? Yeah. He's never going to leave that. Like he's never going to, they're never going to stop. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like they're never going to be true to you. Like these, right. these services are never going to be true to you or true to being good or whatever or true to anything other than the market so yeah and in fact they don't hesitate to reveal their intentions when pressed exactly exactly so and so I think it's so good to be reminded of that and then to operate from that place of like 
you know, now my return was like, okay, this is my, this is my engagement with capitalism. And how do I want to engage with capitalism? And do I really think I can enter (laughs) safely and all of that? Right. You know, it's a different way of approaching. So then what about with our beloved um, queer, queer nature folks? Uh, What do you feel like was the key takeaway for survival skills and the OODA loop and all of it? I, I, it's really hard to pick one key takeaway for those two episodes. Um, but I think that I, I think that like the relationship between things like the OODA loop and the really specific skills that they were talking about and that they offered yeah. in writing in that document that we posted in the show, the relationship yeah. between all of that and this concept of tactical hope yes. um, to me is the takeaway that like if we have and we talk about this a lot on the show but for me this was like one of the clearest um uh, uh it was like the clearest picture of what this looks like in real life the idea yeah. that if you if you can if you can keep a sense of agency inside of a crisis yes your capacity to shape what's happening towards your survival and the survival of those you love is so much greater. And all of the skills, like the foundation of all of the skills that So and Pinar teach is um, how do we, how do we stay in touch with our bodies in touch with our bodies and aware of our bodies enough to be able to maintain a sense of agency and decision-making as we're moving through a a scary or crisis situation Mm -hmm. and that our capacity to do that and then be in communication with other people is what ultimately will bridge us towards surviving and surviving in the way that we want to like one of the other Sorry, this is more than one takeaway, but also there are two episodes. So I feel like I get to do two. But one of the other things that they named um, is this like question of are we are we engaging in survival practices in an extractive way or right. in a holistic way? That was for me, that was one of the most challenging questions I feel like that they posed you know, to all of us to consider of what is the quality of our survival? And are we we surviving in the way that we want to if we're doing it by means of extraction from the environment or the people around us? I love that. I love Mm -hmm. that. And I love them. You know, I would would add on to that, that there's the love story at the center of their story. Oh, my God. It was very instructive to me and very sweet. Like, I just loved hearing how they navigated each other and knew each other. Um, like there were just moments where it's like, oh, I'm going to speak first because this is how I am. And it was just like something they understood in their relationship. And mm-hmm. I thought that that was also a good teaching inside the teaching. Like, yeah, if you totally. want to survive with the people that you love, then you need to learn how to discuss survival with the people that you love rather than mm-hmm. avoiding it. I think a lot of times because we don't want to talk about each other's mortality or losing each other or anything we can just avoid the conversations altogether. And I felt like they offered such an invitation of just like, we can increase our skills together, um, but at minimum, we should just be able to have these conversations and mm-hmm. have a sense of what to do when conditions change because they definitely will change as they always do. So right. I was like, yes, y'all, love. Yes, um, y'all. <laughs> love and survival. All right, so... <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> so what about sustainably feeding ourselves? Which I love. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> that I have to say, that conversation, I think this was true for both me and Leah when we were having that conversation, that both yeah. of us arrived in that moment having going through some really, really hard shit. And yeah. for both of us, it was like just like a bright ray of fucking sunshine shining down yeah. on us, just reminding yeah. us that like everything's actually going to be okay, <laughs> you know, and there's it a reason felt like for that, y'all. what we're going through. It really through. felt like that. Um, like in the really, middle of the conversation, was, it felt like I was suddenly in a cornfield of abundance or something. You know, like I was just like, oh. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, Though, you know, the work that Soulfire is doing is really brilliant. And I think for mm-hmm. me, one of the, for me, one of the key takeaways um of that conversation was that we don't yet know what the practices are that we are already engaging in 
that are going ah. to be the means means of future survival. So the story that Leah shared about the mm-hmm. about our ancestors braiding seeds into their hair before being boarded onto ships that were transporting them into slavery in um, what would become the United States. And then those seeds generations later becoming the means of transmuting like toxic pollutants into Mm. in soil, into soil that can now grow food again. And the fact that there's been hundreds of years between when those seeds were braided into hair and when the discovery happened of the fact that they serve this particular role in environmental remediation. To me, that was just like, holy fucking shit. We don't even know. We don't, we don't know right now (laughs) what the seeds are that we're braiding, but we are, we are already engaged in a process of braiding seeds. We just don't know it. And that for me felt like so hopeful. It felt so hopeful. It felt yeah. it does feel hopeful. And it also felt like it gives many ways of engagement. You know, like I think we can get so caught up on like who's able to engage in a way that a camera can capture and see and like people can follow. And it was just like no one was following, no one was taking a picture, no one was doing any of those things. People were right. braiding what they knew to be of value into the one place that they knew they could carry with them. And it was there was something so simple and humble about that act, and it feels and, like that. Like it's like right now, there's some simple humble things that you're doing <laughs> that are loving and that you that right. are familiar and doable and touchable, and they don't require accolades. They just require right. doing. Right, mm-hmm. and they're like in a commitment to, um, and it's like those those actions are being taken in a commitment to visioning ourselves into the future right it's like we're doing we're doing this because we believe that there's you know leah was talking about how our ancestors did that not literally not knowing where they were going or whether they would be killed immediately upon arrival but they did that in a commitment to like in a belief a fundamental belief that some of them would survive and that there was going to be a life on the other side of it and to me it felt like we are in a collective moment well, I mean, at the point that we recorded that interview, we were in such a deep collective moment of despair and grief, and we still are. The despair and grief around the pandemic has not dissipated. It's no. been it's been augmented by this renewed sense of like hope for transformation that's coming out of this moment of uprising and rebellion, but we're still in incredibly deep grief. And it was really helpful to be reminded by Leah and actually by a couple of our guests um, that it's sometimes inside of our deepest grief that we are able to make the most life-affirming decisions. Right. Absolutely. You know? I, I deeply believe that. You know, I think that that having a faith in what comes beyond destruction is dropping into the fundamental cycle of what it is to be alive, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, there's fall. Everything's going to come off the tree. It's going to look dead. It may even be dead. And yet life is still going to keep coming forward from this. Like we continue to let go of life to reclaim it. And This period of time, I mean, I don't think we'll be able to see it for a while, but so many people are taking a risk we are now aware of to go be out in the streets together. That is like, it's just wild to me, right? It's just like, oh, we know what it means to not be in a social distance from each other. And yet we have to take this risk because the times call for it. And there's going to be a wave that comes from this protest, there's going to be a wave, Mm -hmm. right? And we know all this. There's so much more awareness of, you know, being able to anticipate grief, but then also the hope and fire and deep faith that is inside the action of still taking to the streets and still saying, and it's worth it. Um, Right. It's worth what we lose in order to reach that life for future generations, for our future selves. So, um, Mm -hmm. And it ties into the next one, the plant medicine and ancient healing practices, because it's, you know, going backwards, but coming forward, it's like that so much of this is like braiding ourselves through time, you know, braiding ourselves Mm. through time is that plants live and die and live and die and continue to offer 
your healing. But what do you feel like was your your main takeaway with another well, one of your rock doves? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it was so beautiful to have this conversation with Lauren, who is, you know, one of my um homies from long ago. We quote Lauren and Marie's and several other people and I co-founded Rock Dove Collective back in the day in New York City when we all used to live there. Well, I mean, Marie still lives there, but you know what I'm saying. But um, yes, Lauren, Lauren is so wise and so Italian. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I just I love talking to her. Um, and it was it was beautiful to reconnect with her. And I think that one of the takeaways from that conversation that has stayed with me in the weeks since is the idea of asking permission. Um, yes. You know, she talked about how part of her journey of leaving New York City and, and moving up north to the Hudson Valley involved coming into relationship with plants there and yeah, yeah. and realizing that her relationship with them was like a very conscious, mindful relationship that really needed to be grounded in like asking permission and mm. um not being in like an extractive use cycle with the land and with the plants there. Um, Mm -hmm. And that to me, there's, you know, it's sort of, it's all kind of full circle, right? This idea of like, how do we know when we've gained consent? How do we ask permission? You know, the same issue came up um, or the same question came up in the queer nature interviews as well of like, how do you know when you're actually welcome on the land? And how do you know when mm-hmm. the land is letting you know that you're not actually welcome, which doesn't mean that you don't belong, but does mean that you're not welcome. And how do you actually register that information? And that, that in and of itself, you know, in addition to all of the really concrete um all the really concrete information that Lauren shared about about practices that we can all be engaging in to reduce viral spread, reduce the risk of infection for ourselves. There is this fundamental piece that's about we actually have to be able to turn and look at the land and the plants directly yeah. around us and figure out how to be in right relationship wherever we are. And that that's a call that anyone can answer. And it doesn't require you to have formal training as an herbalist or as a doctor or as a, any other thing. It's really yeah. about slowing down and noticing. I love that. Oh, mm-hmm. I love that. You know, I've been one of the books I read on this journey has been Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, which Ooh. tons of people had told me for the longest time, mm-hmm. like, you need to read this book. It really feels like in a beautiful dance with emergent strategy. Like it, it, it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> this is that, this, you know, and, but so much of it is that is like, how do we remember that we're always in a conversation with the land and we always need to ask permission to be there? You know, I spent the last three months, basically two months, three months in Hawaii. And I kept feeling this feeling of home and being like, oh, you know, of course you do. It's, it's paradise. <laughs> like, you know, who, who won't feel that some of that here, but then having these moments of being like, oh, what permission do I have to be here in this moment, in this time? And what are the limitations on that permission? Um, mm. And letting it be okay. You know, the whales were like, yes, girl. You can be right here where you can see us. Um, But then there was also a feeling of impenetrableness um, around the mountains and around other spaces. And it was just like really good to hear that. You know, there was like, yeah, the ocean is a home to me, regardless of where I am. And land is less so. Like, And I think some of it is my own learning until I learn how to be in right relationship with it. And listen Hmm. to the cycles of it and plant in it and all of that, I won't really have a place there. And it feels like a new goal for the next portion of my life is finding ways to be a gift to land when I arrive, you know? So I really love that. Um, And I loved the, the, her, you know, I feel like her, not her older sister, (laughs) but I feel like a sister to all these people, uh, that you have had in your life over the years. And it was just like so exciting to hear, to have watched Lauren for all these years, listening and opening to her gift and her calling 
And this felt like a next level of it. You know, just like, oh, right now we need this teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and then creating and claiming home with Vicky. Mm. That oh, my God. Was outstanding. The brilliant. Tell us what you take brilliant Vicky Law. Oh, my God. I know. Um, I was like, another. Another comrade from the past, I met Vicky through organizing in New York City um, many years ago. And yeah. and Vicky is, you know, does a really, um, really groundbreaking prison abolition work in addition to having been a squatter. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm like, what were the key takeaways from the Vicky episode? I think. Um, maybe one of the key takeaways, which is going to sound kind of silly, but for me was like a fun learning is that like the skills come later that like you can, (laughs) there's like (laughs) that you can learn to do all the shit that you need to do in order to build a home. And so like the political, you know, I feel like so Mm. many efforts regarding housing, um, there's so much machination around like, well, who are we going to find to do this? And who are we going to find to do that? And how do we get the right to do this? And how do we get, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and like in Vicky's story, what you really hear is people saying, well, we have the right to be in this building. So we're going to take the building and then we'll yeah. figure out the rest later in terms of yeah. <laughs> how, how we make it livable and then how we eventually make it legal if we wish to and then Mm -hmm. how we bring it to code as a part of that process but the very first thing we're going to do is assert our right to live here um and of course conditions have changed a lot in new york city since the time that that all of those buildings were being turned into squats but i feel like the lesson of that time period and the lesson of the process that those buildings underwent particularly those that did become legal co-ops um but you know which was a process that took like 20 to 30 years I feel like that's a really important lesson for now as we face conditions of gentrification all over the U.S. and particularly looking at places like Oakland where you know where housing is um, such a battle Um, and even here in Minneapolis where affordable housing is a real battle and yet there's also lots of empty housing Um, yeah I I just that that to me felt like the that idea that like we'll get the we can we can learn the skills that we need but the very first thing we need to do is assert our right to occupy space felt like the key takeaway yeah it feels like that is a key takeaway for this moment in a lot of ways too you know as um you know your city (laughs) is just making this big pivot around policing um Mm -hmm. that I think other cities are going to follow in you know what I've seen so many times in movement is like well we can't make this move until we can show that we know exactly what we'll do on the other side of it and Mm. You know, I feel like a huge impetus of emergent strategy was like, we're not going to know what to do on the other side of it. It's going to all be experimentation. Um, What we have to do is trust ourselves to be experimental. And that felt like it really came through to me in that episode is what I heard was like, we were willing to be experimental because we knew we had the right to exist. And like the same thing with policing, right? It's like, we we know- that we deserve to not be shot by the police. We will figure out the rest once we redistribute these funds to folks who aren't trying to kill us, you know, like, and there's so right. many other arenas like that, right? Where it's like- Well, and it's so interesting, right? Like yeah. one of the things that I'm witnessing already in the wake of the Minneapolis City Council's like historic announcement yesterday um, <laughs> that they're going to dismantle <laughs> the police department in Minneapolis. I'm so proud to live here. Um, yes. But one of the things that I'm immediately seeing is all these people, both like high profile people and not high profile people on social media being like, well, I'll be really curious to see what this actually looks like. And it's like, look, yeah. <laughs> a of all one, there is a plan and there's been a plan. Exactly. And I mean, there's 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 many plans for what this would look like. So it's not like yes. anyone is and out here models. being like yeah. and many models. So one, just do research and then you can learn what it looks like. But then two, it's like <laughs> as though <laughs> as though the idea that you would have a roadmap to um what the other side looks like having not been there doesn't directly come from philanthropy. 
Right. Yes. Like for anyone who's been in the nonprofit yeah. sector or really any sector that has to that's primary existence is like related to being able to get funding from other people to pay for the work. Like we all know that the only reason why we're expected to know what the solution looks like before we have it is to get money. And yes. so it's yes. just like, yes. no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing here. <laughs> like this isn't like a philanthropic endeavor. This is right. real people saying we really, really recognize that the police do not exist to keep us safe they do not protect human beings and if what we want is to be safe and to have humans being pre-protected then we need a different system because that's not what the police system does and it's been, yeah. it's like watching all these people be like but how will we protect ourselves it's like is this situation currently protecting us Right. No. And I think it's so beautiful that. So the skills will come later. Yeah. The skills will come and it might take a long time, right? Like the cities where people have been trying alternatives like mediation and other things, it's taken a long time. It takes a long time because people have to start to shift how they think of it from someone else will clean up the mess to I have to get my hands dirty. Um, or I have to pivot how I respond in this moment. And I think it's one of the most exciting, you know, homecomings I could have ever imagined is like, oh, people are starting to really experiment with this. And well, and it's like people are really and I think one of the things one of the other things that is making this moment possible in Minneapolis and I know we need to get back to the rapid fire, but is like. <laughs> You know, there's there's years of organizing that's underneath this. But then but then one of the other things that happened inside the uprising was this process of block by block organizing for community self-defense and people recognizing that, like, if we are going to defend ourselves in this moment where the police are out of pocket, the National Guard is here not to protect us, but to protect the police. Yes. And we can't actually we know right now. And, you know, I learned this very directly over the weekend. If there's a crisis unfolding, we can't call the police right now. Right. So what are we going to do? So right. e- like all right. these folks in the city had this immediate gut experience of having to figure out how we were going to take care of our folks who were in crisis and how we were going to rely on each other and how we were going to really quickly network our entire blocks and build barricades and do whatever the fuck we needed to in order to make sure that if someone came up on our block trying to start a fire, we could put it out quickly. And knowing that we wouldn't be, knowing that the fire department wasn't going to come to us, knowing that the police department wasn't going to come to us, right? So like that all happened also in the last two weeks leading up to this announcement. The community has a really different sense of what's possible now because of the uprising exactly and there's some ways you know like I mean I've been a part of many 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 organizations who have simulated and practiced and thought through and planned and you know all these things all along the way but there's some stuff that you only get to practice when you jump off the branch right and it's like Mm -hmm. flap your wings now figure out how to do this and it feels like this is one of those moments where a lot more people are like, I'm willing, I'm willing to jump off the branch. I'm at least willing to acknowledge that the tree is on fire. Um, and <laughs> the branch is not safe. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, cause I, I think that's the, that's the pivot, you know, that I felt actually as a thread throughout almost every single one of your interviews was people are holding on to a branch on a burning tree and being like, well, how will we guarantee safety if we let go of this, you know, and it's like, right, there's no guarantee in any direction. That's not what we're guaranteed safety. What we are guaranteed is that we can be together in this and that we can figure out a way to do this in deeper alignment with our values. Yes. And it's actually the ideology of capitalism that has us believing that a guarantee of safety would even be possible for anybody. Exactly. exactly. Totally. And totally. I'm really grateful that I'm grateful for the through lines, right? Like the through lines of like, you can do these things yourself and that all of us have indigenous roots. If you keep reaching back far enough, there's roots of when our peoples were connected to a place, even if we don't have that in this moment. And if we can keep reaching back and listening, it's like, we actually remember and know and like, We don't know what's been braided into us, but there's knowing about how to care for each other. 
and how to be in relationship to land and how to feed each other and how to survive and how to be stealthy and how to play. Like it's woven into us, you know, like we, we each are seed. And I felt like that coming through over and over again. And I'm really, really grateful you did this series and that you and Zach, you know, took the level up. Oh, wait, first, I know I want to do a key takeaway from the conversation with Marie's. Um, oh, yes. Yes, yes which, like, you know, it was me? like, no, well, and I mean, I, I did reference it early on, but I feel like there but it should be a key takeaway because Marie's the key. Marie's is key. Marie's is the key. Um, um, But I, (laughs) um, I think, and I, and I think that before you you say this in a very sister moment, one of the only things I did during my entire sabbatical was get on a call that Marie's organized about Tiger King. (laughs) Okay. Yes. I love Marie. Marie's was like, like hold on, we need to, this. We need to have on. queer movement people talking about this. I'm organizing exactly. It all. I was like, that's um, <laughs> Marie's. Anyway, okay, that's Marie's. But Keys. I think I think one of the one of the um, one of the key takeaways um, from my conversation with Marie's, which ranged a lot between we were talking about sheltering in place, we were talking about what organizing looks like under quarantine conditions, yeah. um, we were talking about the the concerns about ableism and violence that were going to happen inside of the, um, the, you know, sort of war zone response to the pandemic yes. that we were already seeing indicators of. There was a lot in that conversation. But for me, one of the key takeaways was the importance of making space for our grief in this moment. And that... Right. Um, right. That we're still in, we're still in the wave of loss, and we're going to continue experiencing waves of loss as the pandemic and other pandemics that are likely to come come later continue to shift the way our society functions. And a lot of the things that we took for granted would always be true about how we in, interact with each other and engage with each other. A lot of those things are already past now, and we just don't know it. Um, in right. addition to the fact that people are passing, right? It's not, it's people passing, and it's also practices and norms that are passing away, some of which we're not aware of yet are, are already gone. Um, and and I think Marie's orientation to like being in being in grief, making space for the grief, ritualizing the grief was really mm. helpful, both as like just a takeaway, but also as a tone set for the rest of the miniseries. Thank you. And thank you, Marie's. And thank you to all of our guests. Our, every single guest, Marie's, Lauren, um, Anjali, Rashid, So, Pinar, um, who am I missing? <laughs> Vicky. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone, Leah, everyone was, Bex, everyone was so incredible. Like we just, what an incredible gift to be a part of this conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to How to Survive the End of the World and for being a part of the Apocalypse Survival miniseries that we've run over the last few months. It's been a journey. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. Thank you. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the lovely Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. And now we're going on a break. <laughs> it's summer. We're going on break. Um, Autumn <laughs> and Zach, as has been mentioned in the show, put a ton of labor into this series and putting it on together as parents in the midst of a pandemic um, and an uprising. So, um, yeah, they need to recover. And I'm just coming back in and um, I'm really excited to see them take this time and we'll be back um probably in august i think is our plan 
Uh, during that time, we'll be doing a few guest podcasts, uplifting the work of others as we've been doing for the past few breaks. There'll probably also be some surprise episodes because the conversations continue. Yes. And then there's something exciting I want to announce to you all, which is that um, myself, Adrian, and Toshi Regan have been working on another podcast um, that is called Octavia's Parables. And we are very excited about it. It's going to be a deep dive chapter by chapter look at the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents. And it's going to be launched, like actually come out on Octavia Butler's birthday, June 22nd of this year. And we're going to go, isn't that a great idea? I was like, oh, that's great. That's so awesome. <laughs> and it. is it going to be like, <laughs> is it going to be week by week or how how many, how often are episodes yeah, coming out? So it's going to be like each week an episode will come out and um, we're thinking right now, I think it's each week, one episode, one chapter, cool. basic, basically of cool. the book. And we'll be going from now through the election in November nice. um, because the election cycle that we're in right now is the one right before the period of time that the book picks up. Oh, wow. So whatever we elect right now is really like the condition setting mm-hmm. towards or away from the parables that Octavia laid out for us. Um, and each one, we're basically giving a brief summary of what happens in the chapter and then some analysis of what happens in the chapter and some questions for folks to be reading along with or discussing along with or just sitting and reflecting on as as you develop. It's basically um, like the most so, dreamy book club experience yeah. that anyone could possibly hope it's for. It's the most dreamy book club experience of all mm-hmm. time. <laughs> I'm like, if you weren't busy, <laughs> um, that would be the only thing that made it even dreamier. Aww. But I feel, I feel very good about it. You know, Toshi has been our guest twice on this podcast. Toshi's the bomb. she's incredible um the creator of the octavia uh, octavia e butler parable of the sower the opera and so it's just a text that we're all like obsessed with and feels really relevant for right now so if you want to help us get that show off the ground um you can go ahead and become a sustainer of getting us off the ground that's patreon.com slash o parables O-P-A-R-A-B-L-E-S. And we're also on Twitter at O-Parables. So that's where we'll post any updates and when we launch. But I'm really excited. We're being produced by Kat Aaron. And um, so great. we've got – it's super sweet. It's all – it's like a family affair. We've got six episodes in the pocket. And, yeah, we're just – we're in mm-hmm. the recording mode. So Beautiful. So that will be coming out. And like we said, there'll be other content and then we'll be back with you at the end of the summer. And I am really excited to spend my summer, quote unquote, resting and also listening to. <laughs> but I'm excited. I was to, like, do you know rest? I'm excited to rest would to like to be to know you, like in, in my moments of rest. I'm excited to be listening to um, Octavia's parables. That sounds really dreamy. Thank you for Yay. the offering. I think it's going to be a blast. Um, so we love everyone and have a beautiful summer. Yeah, we love y'all. Peace.